I'm going to go ahead and invite you to have a seat. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 this morning. I'm going to clear up a misnomer right at the beginning. Um, there's been a mistake made in popular culture, and it needs to be settled. The monkeys actually released the song, I'm a Believer, in 1966. It wasn't Smash Mouth, and it was not made famous and introduced into the world by the movie Shrek. It was the monkeys in 1966. You may have remembered the catchy tune. I, there's danger in me even bringing it up today because it could be permanently seared into your memory and it'd be difficult for you to move forward and get anything else out of the sermon, but we're going to take that risk. Then I saw her face. I'm not going to read it, but I am going to say it. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Not a trace of doubt in my mind. Now I'm a believer, yeah, 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 yeah. Now I'm a believer. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer, not a trace of doubt in my mind. I remember hearing that song as a kid, and my my mom loved the monkeys, and I remember hearing that song and thinking, I don't know what he believes, but I really like this song, and I enjoyed singing the song. Maybe you know what he's talking about when he says, now I'm a believer. I'm not sure, um, even, and I don't want to even get into that, but what I want to ask you this if you, can, if you claim this morning to be a believer, what is it that you believe? What is it that you actually believe? Can you say this morning, now I'm a believer? Several people in John chapter 20, the, the book that will be in, the chapter that will be in, they were singing a similar tune. They were saying, as a result of the events that took place in John chapter 20, they were saying, now I'm a believer. So I want to talk to you about what it is that they actually began to believe. And so John chapter 20, we'll read the entirety of the chapter together. I think it's a beautiful passage. There's no real good place to stop. I don't even just want to continue reading the book on to the end, but we'll just read chapter 20 this morning. The Bible says in John chapter 20, verse number 1, Now on the first day of the week, which by the way is Sunday, this is a special day. This is where Christians, even in this chapter, this is where we uh, really hold dear to the Lord's day, to, to, to Sunday. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. I'm going to pause just for a moment there as we see that word. John has this theme, he draws it out from the beginning even to the end of, uh, of his book. But this idea of light and dark, evil and, and, and goodness, truth and lies, hope and hopelessness. I think he's saying something when he says, while it was still dark. Don't know that Jesus had recently been crucified and buried in his tomb. It was dark. So they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, verse 2. And so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John, the writer of the book, I believe, using this as, as, uh, in place of his name. Mary comes and says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb and both of them were running together but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. There's been a lot of uh, arguments over what does that mean this, that the one outran the other and I'm here to, to tell you what that means. It means that one was faster than the other and uh, more than likely it means that, that, uh, that uh, John was actually the younger 
and was able to outrun Peter. Maybe Peter was a larger guy, we're not sure. But anyway, John says he got there first. He reached the tomb first. In verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. When the disciple, or then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said the things that he had said to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then the disciples were glad When they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas said, or Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you've given us this account this morning. And explicitly even give the reason as to why you have given it to us. So we thank you for that. We pray that again that we would be encouraged, that we would be edified and instructed as a body, as individuals, how we could serve you better this morning. God, we pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that we would be believers, not unbelievers. We pray that we would, descriptor, descriptors of us would, would not be suitable, unbelieving, but believing. God, we thank you for the fact that Jesus has risen. Because without that fact, we are of all men most miserable. But without that fact, we are all doomed. And we are all damned. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you did not stay dead, but that you resurrected. Thank you for the implications of that. We pray that you'd give us faith to see this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. The claim is made in this passage very clearly that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. He is alive. And traditionally, we may say it in a responsive way. If I were to say this morning, He is risen, what would you say back to me? Yes, and it's not Easter, but we're going to celebrate it anyway. So He is risen. He is risen indeed. We need practice. We're a nine-month-old church, and so we, we get some grace there. Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. And that is ultimate, it's, it's vitally important that we understand that this morning. And here's the reason why. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith. If Jesus did not rise, we are hopeless. There's hope for no one. But he did rise, and if we believe... We can have life through his name. He did rise, and if we believe, we can have life through his name. So quickly, I want to ask this question of you this morning and suspend it over you throughout our time together. Do you believe? Do you truly believe that Jesus is resurrected? There's so many ways that we could go, so many applications from that one statement, that one truth. It has bearing over every level and every fiber of our being that Jesus is alive. I'm going to look this morning with you as to why some people struggle to believe. Why some people struggle to have life through Jesus' name. The first point I would like to bring up is ignorance. Many times people... In the true sense of the word, but many times people struggle to understand or believe the gospel simply because they're ignorant of the truth. Look down at verse 8. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must arise from the dead. And then the other disciples went back to their homes. When I first said ignorant, maybe you were like, oh, I can't believe he just said that. In this day and age in our culture, ignorant is, is really an offensive thing to say of somebody. Like as if somebody's a jerk or they act foolish. But really, in the true sense of the word, ignorant just means that they don't know. I definitely don't mean it in a derogatory way. 
one of Jesus' disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was ignorant of the very fact that Jesus would have to resurrect, that he would have to come back from the dead. And it was his ignorance that had kept him from belief. It says there that John saw and he believed. When he saw the empty tomb, things were made clear. He saw the empty grave clothes lying there, even in the form of Jesus himself. But yet no Jesus was there. Some of the disciples went in different directions. Peter perhaps wondered, has it, had his body been stolen? Had it been moved? Mary the same? Was there some type of a, a framing going on? Was there some type of a plot twist? They weren't sure. But John, when he saw the empty grave clothes, when he saw the void tomb, he knew in that moment that Jesus had resurrected. See, he was lacking some information. He was lacking some understanding. He'd always known that Jesus was a great teacher. He'd always believed that. He'd always known that he was a miracle worker and could do signs. He was like the other disciples, and they all believed that Jesus had the words of life. Where else would they go? To whom would they turn? Jesus had the words of life. But his understanding, his Faith in Jesus was incomplete until he saw the empty tomb. And when, when John saw the empty tomb, he believed. But what did he believe? That Jesus was gone? No, he believed in the resurrection. John was the very first person in the world to believe that Jesus Christ was alive again. He was the very first. When he saw it, his understanding was complete. You need to know that the, the resurrection is an integral part to the gospel. You need to know that it is a, is a key component of the gospel. You say, well, what is the gospel this morning? I've got this explanation from an article. I think it's a, just a beautiful, concise, full explanation of the gospel. The gospel actually means good news. The good news that what God has done in Jesus Christ the Bible paints human beings and all human beings everywhere as in rebellion against God and therefore under his judgment. That's the bad news of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but encapsulated in the good news is the bad news. That all human beings in rebellion against God and are therefore are under his judgment. But although God stands over against his, us in his judgment because of our sin, Quite amazingly, he stands over against us in love because he is that kind of a God. And the gospel is the good news of what God in love has done in Christ Jesus, especially in Jesus' cross and resurrection, to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to himself. So the bad news is that God is a righteous God. And all who rebel against him will be judged will be punished and all of us are in that boat and yet not in judgment but in addition to that in love he sent his son and through the cross and through the resurrection we see the power of the word made flesh Christ bore our sin on the cross he bore the penalty he turned aside God's judgment God's wrath from us and he canceled out our sin and the brokenness of our lives he restores. This is the gospel. The shattered relationships he rebuilds in the context of the church. The new life that we human beings find in Christ is granted out of sheer grace of God. 
and it is received by faith as we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. We confess him as our Lord and we bow to him joyfully. And all of that is possible in a reality for those who are in Christ because of the resurrection. One day he will make all things new. The good news culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness where neither sin nor any of its effects can survive. It won't follow us there. And where we as the people of God can enjoy the presence of God forever in the context of resurrection existence. Even the entirety of creation resurrected. All things new. I want to say to you this morning that if you hear the gospel declared this morning and you don't either shudder with fear or relish and enjoy unspeakable, then you don't understand the gospel. Peter and John, as they rushed into that tomb, they didn't understand the gospel. But John, when he saw the empty tomb, and he recognized that Jesus is alive, he believed. He began to understand the gospel. And if you... are here this morning and you hear the gospel, you think you understand it, but it does not induce either fear or joy, then you do not understand it. For those who are in Christ, we are overcome with joy when we hear the story of the gospel. And it never gets old. We can preach it every single day to those who truly understand it. It doesn't get old. And to those who are far from Christ and understand That God's judgment, the creator of this world, is against them and on them. When you truly grasp that, you're overcome with fear. Ultimately, you're not left there. That's the point of the good news. The point I want to make this morning is this, that you need the gospel. You need the gospel to be true. And you need to be reconciled to God. You know, it's unfair. Life is. But as Christians, we oftentimes get uh, characterized in, in ways that are untruthful. They're not, they're, they're not true. Atheist uh, uh, character, characterization of uh, Christianity often gets painted like this. That Jesus is some type of a tyrant who demands to be worshipped or he will destroy us. Recently, I was uh, on Facebook. Yes, I have a Facebook account. And I was scrolling down through there and I saw this picture of Jesus, this beautiful uh, face, and it's so kind. And it says, worship me or you will burn or something like that. And it's an oversimplification. And it's not true. That's not. They, they reduce Christianity to those simple points and they reverse the order. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that you are on fire and Jesus is reaching out to save you. The gospel says that you are dying, that you are separated from God, that his wrath is upon you. You're running from him and Jesus is saving you. That's the gospel. That's the truths of the gospel. And all of those things, all of the components, their foundation is in the resurrection. As we come to Christ by faith, We come to him by faith on the foundation of the resurrection. As we live our lives as Christians, we live that through the power of the resurrection. 
integral. The resurrection is. The resurrection of Jesus is also important because it validates who Jesus claimed to be. Namely, he claimed to be the Son of God. John chapter 2, verse 18 The Bible says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, I believe that that's exactly what took place in Jesus' mind, as, or in John's mind, rather, as he races into the tomb and he sees the empty shell. The spices collapsed on top of the linens. And he remembers what Jesus said. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. So for John, there in that tomb, his ignorance was wiped away. His comprehension it was increased as he remembered what Jesus had said to him. So the resurrection brings validation to the identity of Jesus Christ, but it also brings us hope. The resurrection brings us hope. If Jesus Christ is not resurrected, then we have no hope that we will be resurrected either. We have no hope either. If he can't raise himself from the dead, how could he raise us from the dead? It's it's a truth that apart from Christ's resurrection, we have no Savior. We have no salvation. We have no hope of eternal life. But as one pastor reminds us, a living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is a present Christ. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life even now. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life in eternity. And a living Christ is a Christ who gives victory. If Jesus can rise from the dead, he can raise you. He is a living Christ and he is a present Christ. So the resurrection gives validation to Christ's identity. And it also gives us a hope to those who are ignorant, to those who don't understand As we as Christians think back to what God has used in our lives and he's exposed the gospel to us. We were at once ignorant, blinded by the God of this world and now he's opened our eyes and allowed us to see just as John what the gospel truly is. Let's also look forward. Consider the fact that many in this world are ignorant of the gospel truths. They walk in darkness. They must be told. Many are ignorant of the gospel entirely, utterly And they need to know that the grave is empty. I think of the song that I sang as a child. Perhaps we'll sing it here someday. Set my soul afire, Lord. Set my soul afire. Make my life a witness of thy saving power. I want to be a witness of your saving power, of your resurrection power. power. Millions grope in darkness, waiting for thy word. Set my soul afire, Lord. Set my soul afire. This is a prayer that I have over my own life over the life of my children and over the life of my church, that God truly would set our souls afire, that we would remember that we were once in darkness, that we were once ignorant, but the word of God came to us. Because that has come to us, we should also go. As we were ushered out of darkness, let's not forget how many are left in darkness. Think of Joseph there in that prison. 
As his friends, as his brothers are, not literal brothers, but as his friends are pulled from the, the, the pit, Joseph says, remember me, don't forget me. Would to God that we, as those who have been rescued from a pit, not forget, not be evil and forget those who are still walking in darkness. As we consider, why do so many reject the gospel? Why will, in the end, so many reject the gospel? Because they are ignorant of it. And so would God send us. So many of our missionaries, even as a, as a church, our friends whom we used to worship with, who used to sit in our pews and watch our children and us, our, and our, uh, uh, us watch theirs. And we've shared tears and laugh, laughter with. They've gone. Why have they gone? Because many millions are ignorant of the gospel truths. And so they go and we send. Even Jesus, as we read just a moment ago, said of his disciples, even just as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. It's not a different, it's not a different mission. Jesus said that he had come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Now he is sending us to do the same with the exact same mission. Now much of the work has been accomplished and will be accomplished by the power of the Spirit through us, but he has sent us on that mission. We have been sent. So the truths of the gospel, the light pushes back the darkness. We've been sent. It pushes back the ignorance. We have been sent. So for John, his confusion, his ignorance, it melted away when he saw the empty tomb. He saw the, the hollow grave close. But for some in this chapter, that was not enough. The empty tomb would not be enough for some. Perhaps it wasn't enough for Peter. It sure wasn't enough for Thomas. And so sometimes it's ignorance that holds us back, but sometimes, catch this, it's our intelligence. Sometimes it's our intelligence. And don't hear me wrong. When I say intelligence, I don't mean to say IQ. I don't mean to say somebody having the facts or, or being smart. I mean to say our own powers, limited powers, mind you, of reason, coupled with our personal experience, those two things, if relied on entirely, will hinder us from accepting the gospel. Our own powers of reason, coupled with personal experience and observations, they can cripple us as we look into the tomb. Verse 19 of this passage, on the evening of that day, this is Sunday evening, this is the first Easter, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Skip down to verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Give Thomas a hard time, but maybe you can identify with him. Maybe you're not so easily swayed. Maybe you don't jump onto the nearest the bandwagon and you don't automatically jump into the, to the next scheme, as it were. Thomas is a bit of a, a skeptic.
Do you need to know that Thomas loved the other disciples? They had a great relationship, it seems. He'd known them for a long time. They had a mutual love for Jesus. Thomas here is not rejecting the fact that, that he has a, a deep affinity, a, a strong affinity and love for, for Jesus. He simply did not believe in the resurrection. I'll just take a moment and say this. There, oftentimes, doctrine, theology can divide us. It can. And so in a desire to bring unity and to, to seek peace, lots of times as Christians we're tempted to lower the bar and to change the standards, to exchange truth, to weaken it and water it down. And while that's a noble thought, it's not something that we should partake of. Doctrine divides, and it's, in, it's intentionally that way. Truth is truth, and we should never abandon it. But at the same time, we as, as, as Christians, as humble followers of Christ, we should recognize that it's still those who do not believe, that do not see things the way that we have seen, that have not had the darkness pushed back, and, and full true comprehension and belief come we should humbly and kindly recognize that. Imagine how Thomas would feel right now. Everybody else believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. And here's Thomas. Not believing. Think about the ten uh, spies that believed that they should not go into Canaan. And the two that believed they, that they should. Imagine being the two. How left out you'd be. Well, it's, it's quite worse for Thomas here. All of 12 apostles, of 12 disciples, 10 believe that Jesus is resurrected. One is dead because he's a coward and he, he turned on Jesus. And then it's just Thomas by himself. Thomas loved Jesus and he loved the disciples, but he could not believe. He needed something more. And while it would have been wonderful had he believed in Jesus, he couldn't. Throughout church history, by the way, there's been this certain view about why Thomas was not there on that first Easter evening. Many people believe that he was out hunting and hiding eggs. That's not why he wasn't there. It's false. Now, I think that Thomas was struggling. He was struggling to fit in. He was struggling to find identity. He was struggling with grief. He had just lost his friend. And now this doctrine, this theological truth was dividing him. Perhaps he wanted to believe, but he says, I can't believe. I just can't bring myself to that place. Maybe the disciple, the other disciples were mistreating him even. I, I can see that taking place. Sometimes Christians act foolishly. I think Thomas is spending some time by himself. He's working through this. We all deal with our emotions differently, and I think that's what Thomas has just got some grief that he's working through. Been a rough two weeks, to say the least. You can imagine what they had gone through. Maybe he's just out clearing his head. Maybe you can identify with Thomas this morning. Maybe faith doesn't come so easy to you. And maybe your eyes are constantly being snagged by some other. Thing that now you're required to believe or that the Bible says is true. Maybe it's even led you to a place of doubt, confusion, hurt, isolation. Maybe you're not a believer this morning. And for whatever reason, you're here this morning. And you say, I, I, I'm not a believer. I just enjoy the company of Christians. 
Maybe you don't want to be alone, or maybe you, maybe you just enjoy the camaraderie. I'm not sure. I want to tell you this morning, I want to welcome you in. I want to welcome you into the grave this morning and also share with you some encouragement from the life of Thomas. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you say, I, I, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he's the Son of God. And yet, there's so many other things that if my life, if my faith was a sweater, it's got picks and, and, and snags everywhere because everything seems to, to drag me down. I struggle with a lack of faith this morning. I think this passage has a, an encouragement for you as well. Before we get into all that, I want to wrestle with what was holding Thomas back. Throughout the, the past two millennia, there's been uh, arguments and theories that have been uh, foisted and put forward. This is what actually happened with Jesus. Different, even Islam has got an interesting view on, the, on, on who Jesus was and what his resurrection actually looked like. Some people believe, and maybe even Thomas, maybe Thomas was looking and saying, you, you're hallucinating. This is one view, this is one theory. We'll talk about a few. Number one, hallucination. Maybe Thomas is saying, I, I, Peter, John, Mary, I, I know this has been a, a tough time for you. It's been a tough time for me. I love Jesus, and I miss him dearly. I know we've got a lot of anxiety going on, and I know there's a lot of pain in your life right now, but you need to know that you, you're hallucinating. Imagine trying to tell your friend that. But if he did try that, he probably got smacked. I don't know what kind of temperament Mary had. And imagine trying to share that. I, I think you're hallucinating. This, that's, a, that's a theory on the resurrection, that, that those who saw Christ were just seeing things. The trouble is that hallucinations are, are, are really the brain processing information that it already has. It's not new information. The disciples were not expecting, as we already saw, they weren't expecting Jesus to arise. They weren't, they weren't expecting a resurrection. And so for this hallucination to take place, even on one person's brain and mind, would be almost impossible. And not to mention, the Corinthians tells us that 500 saw Jesus at the same time. We haven't seen something like that since the 60s, that 500 people would be tripping at the same time, that they'd have some type of hallucination at simultaneously. This is not what took place here. And, and so Thomas, even Thomas, would not have believed in the hallucination. Maybe he was working through that. Maybe, are they hallucinating? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that they are. They're not that kind of people. A lot of people have thought over the years that Jesus did not, his, 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 his disciples weren't hallucinating, but actually that Jesus had actually swooned. This is the swoon theory. That he had fainted because of the pain. He had fainted because he had lost so much blood. Maybe Thomas was even thinking that for a moment. Maybe he survived the crucifixion. Maybe that's why they saw him. Roman procedures, though, were very careful to eliminate any possibility of somebody being thought dead but not actually dead. Roman law even laid the death penalty on any soldier who let a capital prisoner escape in any way. So if they were to, if Jesus was to be crucified, they would, they would make sure that he re re received what was coming to him. The reason why they didn't break Jesus' legs is because they were confident that he was dead. Instead, they stabbed him. They pierced his side and out of his side flew, or flowed blood and water. A sign of both stopped breathing, ceased breathing, and blood flow. 
Besides all that, how, how could Jesus hobble over to the stone and remove it while being bound up after experiencing all of the punishment that he had recently received? It'd be impossible. So as Thomas thinks through, maybe they're hallucinating. No, they're not hallucinating. Okay, and option number two, maybe he's writing on some type of papyrus there. He's sitting out behind the house and maybe he says, well, maybe Jesus is just, maybe he just fainted and, and maybe that's all it was. And Thomas says, no, I, I saw he was dead. So maybe he moves on and he says, is there some type of a conspiracy? He begins to, to feel a coldness and a, and a separation from his brothers. Is there some type, of a, some type of a conspiracy going on? And Pascal, is, he's helpful for us here. He says this, the apostles were, were either deceivers or they were deceived. Either supposition is difficult or either supposition is difficult for it is not possible to imagine that a man has risen from the dead. But this is where they are. They have to, it's one of those two. They're either deceived or they're deceivers if Christ has not risen from the dead. But while Jesus was with them, he could sustain them. But afterwards, if he did not appear to them, who did make them act? Who changed who they were? Who gave them a courage and a faith? The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves is quite absurd. And follow it out to the end. And imagine these 12 men meeting Jesus after death and conspiring to say that he has risen from the dead. And this means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promise, to bribery. And one of them had only to deny his story under these inducements, or still more because of the possible imprisonment, tortures, and deaths. They would have all been lost. And follow that out. The bottom line is this conspiracy. They were cowards. They were cowards. We begin to see a change in the life of the disciples as they exit the tomb. But even then, they're still waiting. Why? And hiding because of the fear of the Jews. And so to conspire and even go to their death, and not death of old age, John alone dies in that manner. And not without punishment, not without torture. They all went to their early death, save John. This was no conspiracy. These men were convinced. They were convinced. So really the only option that is left for us this morning is this, that the resurrection actually took place. That the resurrection of Jesus is a truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or passed away. And then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, to one, as, uh, one, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. You can't get away with these types of lies to say that 500 people saw Jesus alive, face to face, after his, after his death, after his, his burial. You can't get away with that. He says they're even still alive, many of them are alive even today. So what are we to think? Living in 
the 21st century. What are we to think of the resurrection? We are to believe it and to receive it. It was prophesied. It was testified of. But still, can you relate this morning? Maybe you're still a bit skeptical of Christianity. Perhaps you're you're a Christian and you find it still difficult to believe certain things and maybe even the resurrection. You say, can I be a Christian and and not believe in the resurrection? Or can I be a Christian and not believe in these things or that things that the Bible would say are true? And while you're there, I can't promise that I can resolve that issue for you, that tension. I I can't promise to take it away, but I can offer you three things out of Scripture this morning. Three encouragements for you. The first is this. Thomas was honest about his doubt. Thomas was honest about his doubt. Look in verse 25. He doesn't hide that. He's not playing around like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Jesus. Oh, man. No, he, he admitted it. He was open about that. It seems counterintuitive to us that we would share our doubts, that we would share our struggles, even our sins, which are related to doubts. That we would share those with our brothers and sisters in the church. It seems counterintuitive, but it is not. It's what God has called us to. One is darkness and the other is light. One is truth and the other is deception. We have to be honest about our sin. We have to be honest about our doubt. We have to be honest about where we are. We have to bring those things into light. And together with help from the church, with help from the word of God and from the very spirit of God, we cast doubt out with the light of We remove falsehoods that hold us back to the truths of Scripture. Imagine somebody performing surgery on you or removing a bullet, sutures maybe in your leg and with no light. How can the brothers and sisters, how can even your family, how can your spouse truly administer the truths of Scripture if there's not light on the wound? How can they help? They can't. They can only do more damage. And as time goes on, it will only be worse. And so as you struggle with doubt, don't hide. Don't go back in time into the, before the sunrise. Step into the light. You are who you are. So be honest about your doubts. Number two, I would encourage you to stick around. I would encourage you to stick around. Though Thomas struggled to believe, he did not abandon his faith altogether. That's valuable. That's a great point for you this morning. You say, well, I, I, I struggle to believe this one thing. I'm not there yet. I can't ascribe to this, and so I'm not cut out to be here. I'm not cut out to be there. Maybe I should just leave altogether. That's not what Thomas did. Thomas says on the first Easter, I cannot believe this. I do not accept it. I reject it. He was open about where he was. But then eight days later, actually seven, the next Sunday, there Thomas is with the disciples. He's not left. He's not run off. It's been uncomfortable. They've had awkward conversations. He's wrestled with it. They've wrestled with him. And he's no better for it at that point, and yet he stuck around. So I want to encourage you, Christian, this morning, that you stick around. Unbeliever, that you stick around, that you're not abandoned, that you're not run, but that you engage and that you embrace 
Why did Thomas stick around? Thomas says this, I don't know everything about Christ, but I know something is different about him. I spoke with a man not that long ago who was an apostate from Christianity. At one point in his life, he had believed the truths of Scripture. He believed in the resurrection. But at that point, when I was speaking with him, he did not. He had rejected and abandoned it all, and it was hard to hear him say it. It was difficult. He said at times in his life, he, he began to have doubts. He wasn't open about them. And at other times in his life, he decided to abandon it altogether. And so he did. He walked in darkness, and when it became too heavy, he ran. That was almost my testimony. Almost. Not that long ago, eight or nine years ago, I went through one of the darkest times in my life as a human being. Just questioning my faith. Growing up in the church. Accepting Christ when I was 17 years old. Repenting of my sin. A glorious salvation. And then some things happened in my life. Some things that were out of my control. And I began to really sense that my faith had no foundation. At least it had a facade of one. It was one of the scariest times in my life. I wasn't sure of what I could believe. Many things I took off the table as I tried to sort out my faith. But here's the one thing that by God's grace I did not do. I did not abandon the church. I did not abandon the people of God. I walked in darkness, but I walked toward the light. And I walked with brothers. And they encouraged me through that time. This is what Thomas did. I'm happy to say this morning that, that while my life is not free from struggle and from sin and from doubt, that God has rescued me. That Jesus himself has demonstrated himself to me in person, face to face as it were, and encouraged me. That's the third point. It's the third piece of information and encouragement that we can receive from this text. One, to be honest about our doubts. Number two, to stick around. And three, that Jesus meets us in our doubt. Do you hear that? That Jesus meets us in our doubt. Because of shame, we cover it up. Because of shame, we hide it. Because of fear, we run. And yet Jesus, the truth of the matter is, He meets us there in our doubt. He met, Jesus, he met John, as it were, there in the tomb. He meets Thomas face to face. A week later, after a week of darkness, after a week of wrestling, He takes Thomas up in His challenge and faces him, and shows him his hands, and shows him his side. That's an encouragement for us this morning. Though you, Thomas said that, and Jesus wasn't present, at least not to his eyes. And yet Jesus heard Thomas's position. He heard Thomas's predicament, and he met, there, he met Thomas there in that very room. So I don't know where you're at this morning, what doubt you're, you're struggling with. What sin is overtaking you now? Walk in light. Don't abandon the the saints. Don't abandon the church. Don't run from the truths that you know. And expect that Jesus there will meet you. Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the implications that flowed out of Christ's resurrection. 
What does he say in response when he sees the resurrected Christ, when he touches his hand? He puts his hand in his side. What does he say? Verse 28, my Lord and my God. He says, my Lord and my God. What a beautiful confession. My Lord and my God. You're not just my teacher. You're not just my Messiah. But you are my God. The very God that I need. The Word made flesh. It is you, Thomas says. One of the, some, a beautiful quote that I heard recently was by a philosopher in the 19th century. He said this, The worthiest use of my reason is for it to annihilate itself before you. Speaking of God, the worthiest use of my reason is for it to annihilate itself before you. To those who are intelligent this morning, I would ask you to consider that. Would you not attack our Savior? Would you not attack our Creator with the the, the tool that He gave you, with reason and logic? Oftentimes we we, we think that, that faith... And reason don't go hand in hand, but of course they do. But at some point in time, we have to recognize our fallible nature. We have to recognize our own weakness. And just because we can't conceive or perceive something to be true does not mean that it is. And so we must annihilate. The, the worthiest use of our intellect is to annihilate itself before the God who speaks. The God who spoke into darkness. The God that spoke into silence. In John chapter 1. We annihilate ourselves before that. We humble ourselves and we believe. This is what John is calling us to do. This is the very reason he wrote the book. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. John says clearly, we're not always afforded this privilege to know exactly why A book was written, but we are here. John says, I want you to know two things. I want you to know Jesus' true identity. And I want you to also know his ultimate purpose. His true identity, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Word made flesh. And he demonstrated that through his resurrection. Know that. Hear our testimony, John says. He also wants you to know his ultimate purpose. And his ultimate purpose, Jesus' ultimate goal in coming to the earth was to give life. Was to give life and to bring peace. Notice the first thing that Jesus says when he, post-resurrection, when he enters into the room, he says, peace be unto you. Peace. The opposite of peace for them was fear. They were hiding. They were overcome with anxiety. They had that knot forming in the back of your neck. You know how it feels. It begins to travel down your arms. You feel paralyzed even. You don't know where to go. You're not eating like you should. You're you're overcome with grief. They had real fear. And Jesus comes to them, not divorced from reality, not a fool, knowing exactly where they are, and he says, peace. It's no surprise that when they see him, they are overcome with joy and gladness, it says. Because Jesus is bringing peace. And he said that he would not long before his crucifixion. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, 
Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Peace Jesus is offering. And it's a peace in the here and now. It's not a peace just for the eternal, although it is. It's a peace even right now. You need to know this, that a resurrected Christ, a resurrected Christ, he displaces fear with peace. We're not the type of church to name it and claim it, but that is a truth that we can claim this morning. Jesus' presence, the resurrected, risen Christ, he displaces fear both in the here and in the then. He displaces it with peace. But not only does he do that, but he also, it's related, is he exchanges death for life. He exchanges separation for reunion. This is the, this is the power of Christ, of the resurrected Christ. He is giving, he's offering life to the full, life in, abund- in abundance. So Jesus meets John in his ignorance. He didn't know any better. He had heard, but he misunderstood, forgotten. He was ignorant, and Jesus met him. Thomas, he met Jesus in his intelligence. Face to face. And here at the end, John is inviting you to meet Jesus as well. Will you receive the message of the apostles? Will you receive the message of Jesus Christ? Who in sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken in different ways, right? But at this point in time, he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. The the Christ, the one who was of God, who is God. And was sent by God into the world. God with us. He brings life and he brings peace. Church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Christian life. And if Jesus did not rise, we are hopeless. But listen to this. He did rise. And if we believe, we can have life. And we can have peace through his name. I invite you to pray with me. God, these are glorious truths that we consider this morning. That by your resurrection, we can have life. Because you live, we also can live. And not just exist, but have true peace in every sense of the word. That we can have peace with you. That your wrath would not be upon us. And that we can have peace of you. We can have peace from you. That even though we look at our circumstances and we say these are more than we can bear, they're heavier than I can lift, these burdens we look to you and though it doesn't make sense, we find peace. As we look into the empty tomb. Christ, we pray that as we go throughout this week, we would remember that first Easter and the power that it brings into our lives even now. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.